We're spending this term thinking about identity. So who we are and what difference it makes to be followers of Jesus and whether that is, uh, how that affects the different parts of our life. And what we're doing is that we are looking, we're, we're looking at different aspects of how our identity is affected by um, following Jesus through different lenses. So we're going to look through the New Testament. We're going to look at different words, different pictures, different angles, um, or what it means to follow Jesus. One of, some of those are very obvious. Like today, we're going to be thinking about it, what it means to be a disciple. Um, some of those things, sorry, this Madonna mic is slightly unnerving. I'm going to say it because you were all thinking it. You all expect me to go vogue. Does that, is it meant to be up my nose or down below my chin? How's that? Is that, is that all right? That's good. Yeah, yeah, it won't go there. Yeah, it's not going up there. Can I have one of these stuck to my forehead? It's only because the other ones are broken. I'm really sorry, but that's all I can do. Um, I'm going to keep seeing that other corner of my eye. Um, some, of the, some of the words we're going to look at this term are really obvious, like being a disciple. Some of them are rather less obvious. So in Peter, it talks about being living stones. Probably not a phrase, probably not a, an image you'd, you'd naturally associate with being a follower of Jesus. Or being a priest that you, if you're a friend of Jesus, are a priest, whether you're ordained or not. So we're going to come to lots of those over the term. We're starting in the obvious place right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel with um, what it means to be a disciple and how that um, changes or affects or helps us with knowing who we are. So Mark chapter 1, it's very few verses. I'm going to read it to you um, and, uh, from verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Pardon me. So one of the things that um, I've been doing this week, or a few of us have been doing this week, is we've been sorting out a whole load of boxes in our attic um, space. And most of those boxes that we've had down have had what you might call memorabilia. And um, if you're a parent here, you'll know that process of your kids bring home things from school, especially at primary school, and there is no way you can throw any of them away, at least while they're watching. Cover your ears at this point, because this has probably happened part in your past. Um, and uh, you squirrel away in the bin the things that you can. You keep the things that are really precious and the things that they don't want you to get rid of, okay? Plus, there's a whole load of other stuff, certificates, key photographs, invitations to parties. And we've ended up with big boxes full, and we've been sort of sorting them through. But I've also got a box of memorabilia, both from my childhood um, and growing up. And one of the first things in that box is my birth certificate. Now, I don't know whether I've told you this before, but I have two birth certificates, the first birth certificate I have simply says this. Born, good start, 13th of February, 1970. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. Um, in Princess Sahai's Hospital in Ethiopia, a boy. That's it. It could be anybody's birth certificate from that day. It simply says, a boy. I'm not even convinced it's got my parents' names on. But anyway, it, it declares that whoever, that somebody was born that day. Then I have a second birth certificate from the British consulate in Ethiopia and in Addis Ababa that actually has my mum's details, my dad's details, my details, my full name, all of that sort of thing. That's a place to start with your identity, isn't it? Your birth certificate, where you were born, who you were born to, the date, your weight, all of that sort of stuff. And as you work through the, your memory box, either in your head or in real life, you're going to see all sorts of things that add up to how you think of yourself, to your identity. So I've got stuff from when I went to school. I've got my school reports. 
they all say pretty much the same thing. Lots of silly mistakes, concentrate more on your work, bit messy, could do better, those sorts of things. Um, I've got my uh, academic records, O-levels, um, A-levels, university degree, all of those sorts of things. I've even got my grade five violin certificate. Very proud of that. Um, and, um, and along the way, photographs, memorabilia from all sorts of things that make me, me. And there's those high moments of life, uh, a marriage certificate, two birth certificates for my kids, um, things that, it, in some ways, other things that feel trivial and yet feel important. Um, photographs of key things that I really remember that have made me, me. The question is, if somebody said to you, name five things that identify you, that give you an identity. If I came around with my rover mic and said, you know, not allowed more than five things, five phrases or sentences to describe you, I wonder what you'd pick. I'm not going to do it, but it'd be quite an interesting one. What five things would most define your identity, who you are? It might be about your family. You might be particularly proud or feel important, your academic achievements or your work achievements um, or something to do with music or the art, whatever it is. Those things that make you, you. And yet this question of who I am, of my identity, is actually remarkably complex. Uh, uh, partly because the whole question of identity is one of the biggest things in our culture and our context at the moment. The question of whether you are defined and identified by your gender or not. The question of whether you are defined and identified by your sexuality or not. The question as to whether you are defined or identified by your race or culture or not. The question as to whether your, your financial sort of status, your um, cultural background, whether those things define you are part of the, the big stuff of life at the moment. And of course, it's not just about you as an individual, because if you are identified personally, that then is to do with who you identify with. So if you're clear as to your own identity, that will change who you identify with as part of a group. Who do I see as being like me? Who do I want to spend time with? Who do I think, yeah, I aspire to be a bit more like them? But it gets even more complex. For a start, it gets complex because those goalposts keep moving. So go back, uh, let's pick an easy one, go back 50 years to the whole question of gender identity. It was very clear. I'm not saying it was better. I don't think it was. But it was very clear what it meant to be male, what it meant to be female. It was easy. It wasn't necessarily very healthy or very good, but it was very easy. It was clear roles, clear identif identifying marks. The goalposts change. We're struggling to work out who we are. It gets complex as well because sometimes some of the things that we most identify ourselves by break. They fall apart. Many of us have experienced what it is for bits of our family to fall apart or to lose people that we love, people who've died, people that we've relied upon, people that have shaped us and made us who we are. Or maybe it's our health and our fitness. Some of us, our identity is absolutely wrapped up in, in being fit or good looking or of a particular stature and then something happens, an accident, an illness that we can't shake. And suddenly those things that we're relying upon to make me, me, to help me identify me, have gone. So the goalposts move. Sometimes bits fall apart that I've been relying on. But also sometimes something I've been aspiring to, I get to and realize it well, wasn't that great. 
Uh, you meet plenty of people who hit midlife, and the things that they have been aspiring to, their identity, it's been to do with their career, or it's been to do with getting a certain amount of money in the bank, or it's been to do with having a family, or whatever it is, and they get there and then go, oh. I mean, not everybody does, but some people, we get there and we look at what we've achieved and go, all right, so I've devoted my first half of my life to being this person. I'm not sure that was what I hoped for. The image I have in my mind is, is there are many points in people's lives where who we imagine we are, our identity, feels more like a jigsaw puzzle we've just dropped on the floor or a vase that we've dropped that's smashed. A whole lot of bits that we're looking at thinking, well, I can identify that bit and I'm sure of that bit and I, I think that's me, but how on earth it all fits together? I have no idea. Even if I could pick them all up, I wouldn't be sure how to glue them back together. And even if I could glue them all back together, I'm not sure that I like the me that I'm putting together. Who am I? How can I know who I am? Now, the interesting thing is that for Simon and for Andrew and for James, these very first three disciples of Jesus, that whole question of who they are was dead easy, comparatively, I think. There were five things that would have identified them, okay? The first thing is that they were male. Again, 2,000 years ago, male versus female. Um, I was about to say um, things have moved on a long time in the, next, in the last 2,000 years. I'm not always convinced that they have. But in theory, things have changed a lot since 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, in Palestine, if you were a man, there was all sorts of education you could get hold of that you couldn't if you were a female. There were all sorts of um, job opportunities you get, and you couldn't get any of them as a woman. There were all sorts of status issues that you had as a man that you wouldn't have had as a woman. These were three men. They knew who they were. Secondly, they were sons of. Do you notice that James is described as sons of Zebedee? If you're of a particular generation, Zebedee only means one thing. I always struggle with reading it without imagining a coiled spring bouncing around that you would look up magic round about sometime. Um, but they were all known as sons of somebody. You were part of a family. And because most people in those days never moved, if you were born in a village, you'd stay in that village, you were always known as somebody's child. I mean, it didn't matter whether you were my age or... 20 years older, you were always known as somebody's son, somebody's daughter. It was your family, that was your identity. Thirdly, they were known as fishermen. Now, that wasn't because they, at some point in their teenage uh, years, gone to a careers fair and looked around all the different things and thought, do you know what? I like the sea, I like the smell of fish, I like doing something practical, I like the taste of fish, I know what, I'll be a fisherman. Actually, what happened was, they were born, and the moment they could be carried, they'd be put in a boat. And the moment they could actually sit up, they'd have something to hold. And the moment they could stand up, they'd have something to throw. And the moment that they could hold a net, they'd be helping pull it in. They were fishermen. They were fishermen since, effectively, they were born. It was part of their identity. Fourthly, they were Jews. Their religious upbringing was very clear. They'd have gone to the synagogue since they were young. They'd have, if they had the, the money or the time, they'd have gone occasionally at least to the temple in Jerusalem for the big celebrations. They knew that they were part of God's chosen people, that he had chosen their people to make a difference to the whole world. And fifthly, the bit that we might miss amongst all of these, they were free. It's one of the big divisions in that society 2,000 years ago, being a slave or being free. That was what society was built on. Roman and Greek society was built on this uh, uh, foundation of slavery. And these guys knew that they were free. They might not be earning very much money. They might not be able to use the freedom for very much in our terms, but they were free. They knew they weren't slaves. It's interesting, when you read about, oh, I don't know, 30 years after this, one of Paul's letters to the Galatian church, he talks about Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave or free. 
the three big identity markers in those days. That's what made you you, amongst other things. Those were the foundational things. You knew who you were. But Jesus was about to come along and put a huge question mark right at the heart of their identity. He was about to ask them to do something that put all of that into question. Not that he was going to say to them, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Not that he was going to say to them, don't care about your Jewish roots. Not that he was going to say to them, I don't care if you're slave or free. He was simply going to say to them, there is something bigger. Something that is like a a pair of arms that scoops up all the broken bits of your identity and puts them together in a coherent whole. Something that makes sense of who you are as a person. He was going to ask them to be his disciples. Now, that's probably the last thing we identify with being a disciple. When, when I say, if I said to you, you are somebody's disciple, you would probably think sitting at somebody's feet, listening, or sitting in a lecture hall, writing down notes. But I can guarantee that the last thing the disciples imagined they were doing was simply turning up to some of Jesus' lectures. They didn't say to Jesus, yeah, that's fine, give us a call when you're doing the next sermon, we'll drop our next, we'll come and listen, we'll bring our notebooks and we'll learn something from you. That's just not the way it worked nor were they simply being religiously instructed. They weren't disciples in the sense of simply being taught how to do a religious life, nor actually were they simply being told, I'm going to teach you a a nicer way to live or a lifestyle, a sort of a, a way of parting your hair and wearing your clothes and being nice to animals. He was actually asking them to come and be with him to be with him, to actually learn from him much more the way children learn from their parents, not always in intended ways. But if you have a child, you don't try and teach them the way to go simply by giving them lectures. Well, actually, I think there are times when we all do that, but I'm not sure it actually works at all. That's not the way children learn from their parents, primarily through being sat down and lectured to, nor is it by a book, nor is it actually simply by being told a list of rules, regulations, things you must do, things you mustn't do. Children learn from their parents. We all learn from our parents by being with them. Just withness. We're just with people. If you are with somebody through lots of your waking hours, through many years of your life, stuff rubs off on you. One of the the, the most unnerving things of turning 47 is realizing just how like each of my parents I am becoming as I get older. My family tell me this regularly. I'm not going to go into all the ways in which I am like them because I'll probably get another list when I get home with other ways in which I'm like them. But we all are, aren't we? We have aspects of our parents. Some of it's DNA, absolutely, but a huge amount of it is those years we spend living at home. We pick up verbal tics. We pick up mannerisms. Most of all, we pick up attitudes. And as, if you're a parent, that is entirely unnerving because it's not always the things that you want them to pick up and you find them... Um, Uh, sort of parroting it back to them. I I should have checked this before, and I'm going to tell a little story that involves Stephen, but it's to my disadvantage, not yours. When when he was little enough to be talking, but not old enough to be at school, there was a moment at home where we were about to go out of the house, and we found him sort of crawling, walking up the stairs. And I think it went, Catherine said, where are you going, Stephen? And he said, just to check my email. I don't know where he got that from. I have no idea whatsoever. I'm really sorry, you'll kill me later. But the thing is, that's how we learn. If you're a disciple, you learn from the master, not primarily just from sitting there getting a lecture, not primarily from reading a book, not primarily from getting a religious instruction. You will learn from the master through withness, 
by simply being with Jesus. And that meant it had to do with their whole identity. They weren't able to be with Jesus with just the religious bits of themselves. They weren't with Jesus with just the moral bits or the ethical bits of themselves. They didn't just go, Jesus, let us know when you want to teach us about prayer. We'll come and be with you then. They were with Jesus the whole time for three years. That withness shaped their identity. And when their identity was shaped that way, it then began to affect everything. If when Jesus had gone back to be with his Father in heaven, they'd gone back to be fishermen, which actually they didn't, they went on to be fishers of people, telling people the good news that their whole identity could be summed up in Jesus, the one who made them and loved them and had come for them. But if they had gone back to being fishermen, they would have been different fishermen because they'd been with Jesus. If they became dads or husbands, They'd have been different dads or husbands because they'd been with Jesus. They'd be different friends because they were with Jesus. If they'd been on, gone on to do business, they'd be different in business because they were with Jesus. It wasn't that the bits of their identity weren't important anymore. It was that in calling them to be disciples, Jesus came along and scooped up all the bits that made them them and said, here you go, this is what makes you whole, being with me. Now, it's an enormous claim. But it makes sense if Jesus was who he claimed to be. If Jesus was God, the maker of all things, the one who made us and knows us from the inside out, if he made us in order to have a relationship with him, then actually having a relationship with him is our most important identity. And within that, all the other bits that make us make more sense, not less sense. If you're a great musician then your musicianship doesn't become less important in relationship with Jesus. It becomes more remarkable, more important, because it's held by the hands that made you. If you are going to be, a, or are, a great businesswoman or businessman, that business acumen will be more remarkable, not less remarkable, because it's held in the hands of the one who's made you. As a friend, as a mum or a dad or a, a partner or a good friend, whatever it is you do, whatever makes you you, the point of being a disciple is that it's the hands of Jesus, the arms of Jesus, scooping up all the bits, sometimes the broken bits, sometimes the stuff about me that honestly I have no idea how to put it all together, and making them whole. That's the beginning of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's why we've called this sermon series Identity. Because when we're following Jesus, it is about shaping the whole of who we are. Not to make us less us. This isn't about the Stepford Wives. This isn't about making us clones. This is about making us more thoroughly us. Because we're held by the one who made us and knows us. And knows us from the inside out. We're going to worship. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come up and join us. We've got a few minutes uh, to respond. And here's what I just want to suggest we do as we come to worship. I would love you to think about at least one of those five things I challenged you to ponder. Thinking about five things that we might name as defining us, who we are. There might be things you're proud of, might be things that you're not proud of, things that you are glad to hold on of, things that you wish you could jettison. But simply in our worship, bring at least one of those to God. Bring them to Jesus and say to him, please, in your arms of love, will you scoop up the person that I am. And as I'm a disciple of yours, will you help me to be more thoroughly me, more thoroughly the person that you've made me to be?